The rest of us, let's open up to Revelation chapter 19. I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. After this, chapters 17 and 18 dealt with the judgment of Babylon, which was an actual city, will be an actual city uh, that will be judged uh, for its false religion, for its, uh, as we look at, as we look at the, the history of Babylon in the Bible, it was an actual place. If you remember the plain of Shinar, of course you all remember that. Let's go back in our minds. Genesis chapter 11, where you have Nimrod building the Tower of Babel on the plain of Shinar, that we could all gather together under the power of man and build a, a tower up into God. And God said, this is not good. Let's go down and confuse them. And so he came down and confused them. And we obviously broke into all these different places. But Babylon had its origins of, of that worship, that idolatry, that false religious system that we could build our way to God. And really, again, that is what every single false religion is about. It's about man's attempt to cover his own sin with, by his own means and build his way to God. Christ, he came down to man and he met us in our deepest need, and he covered our sins. That is, the, that is the difference between the God of the Bible and all the false religions around us. Obviously, like I had mentioned before, very well-meaning, good-intentioned people. However, that is the deception of, of Babylon the Great, so to speak, throughout all the ages, from the time of the, of the plains of Shinar all the way to this day. And God will judge it. And it's sad. And but at the same time, we're in verse nineteen in chapter nineteen, verse one. In heaven, there will be great rejoicing. They say, "Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God." So they're praising God for what? For the salvation because salvation belongs to Him. This Babylon, the great, claim to be able to uh, again these false religious systems. They they claim that salvation is through them. No, it's salvation is through God and Him alone. He alone can save. The glory belongs to Him. He alone should receive worship, not the false prescribed worship that, that man likes to do, you know? I want to worship God in my way, not the way that He tells us to worship. And the power belongs to Him. Babylon was about power and will be about power. Man desires it, but there's one problem it's the Lord's. It's His. And so the Lord is being worshipped because salvation, glory, and power belong to Him. In verse 2, For true and just are His judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of His of servants. And again, as we've been reading through Revelation, we have seen a lot of the judgment of God. I know it's kind of heavy. We've kind of been week after week after week of the judgments of God. It's like joy. God wants to obviously reiterate something to people. And he's done it several times here. And as we're getting here, it kind of, 
as I don't know about you, but it's difficult sometimes when I look at the judgment of God. What about people, you know, who who've never heard the gospel? What about the babies of those people who are unsaved? What about, you know, all the whatabouts? And those are legitimate questions. Great concerns I have, you know, I mean, that, that people ask, how can God do this? How could God judge this type of situation? And I don't have the answers. I'm not God. Praise the Lord, huh? Um, they come to mind, and again, they're, they're lit legitimate. But one thing about God judging people, it says here that true and just are his judgments. True and just. Is God going to be just? Is the punishment going to fit the crime? Yes. Is it going to be based on truth? Yes. You know, I, I often jump to conclusions before I have all the facts. God won't. I often base decisions upon emotion. God's not going to. I'll often, you know, cast a net over a people group or a certain situation and, you know, I'm only human. God is not. His, ju- his judgments are going to be just. You don't need to worry about these situations. When we don't know something about God, we fall back on what we do know. You know, we, we look around us and we see the judgments of God all around the world. I mean, the judgments of man all around the world. The judgments that, it's like, how in the world can this happen? The injustice, it surrounds us everywhere doesn't it? I mean, it's just over and over. I mean, we, you know, someone gets only, you know, five years for decimating, you know, people's lives, and then other people are totally destroyed for sharing the gospel or something. You know, I'm just saying there's an imbalance, there's an injustice all around us. When Jesus comes back, when when he judged uh, judges uh, Babylon, it's going to be totally just. It's not going to be unfair. It's going to be absolutely right. And it's going to cause the heavens to rejoice. Finally, Lord, you're doing it right. Thank you for, not that he's doing it right, but thank you, Lord, it's done, you know. We get to experience justice. Now, I don't want, personally, I don't want justice. I want mercy, amen? <laughs> and I think this is the heart of God. I don't desire that the wicked should perish, that they should all turn and repent, right? And so right now, while we're on the earth, on earth, this is our heart, God, mercy, Mercy for the people. Mercy. Lord, let your love go out and, and change people's hearts. But on that day, when it's all said and done and there's no turning back and we're on the other side of glory, it's going to be a different story. We're going to be commanded to worship because he is going to bring justice. Very kind of a difficult. His, ju- his judgment is said to be true and just. Again, if you want to read Psalm 37 and Psalm 73, it's just the basic struggle. Why do the wicked prosper and the good, you know, and the good, they always have hard troubles. Read these. Let God comfort you. There will be a day. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. And again, adulteries being that spiritual wandering away from the truth. Um, He has avenged her. Uh, the blood of his servants, and he will be worshipped for it. In verse 3, and again, they shouted hallelujah. 
The smoke of her goes up forever and ever. Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise God, all of you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. And then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roaring of rushing, the roar of rushing waters, and it sounded like peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah. For our God, the Lord Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And so after this final judgment of, of Babylon, after this, this comes, it's, it's going to be the wedding of the Lamb. Jesus is identified throughout Scripture as the Lamb of God. We know this from, from Genesis, it's alluded to, to uh, different uh, parts of, of Exodus when you have the blood on the door, to, to John in John chapter 1 when he says, Behold, the, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God. And uh, Israel was, was, was the wife of, of Christ, and we are the, the bride of Christ, the virgin. It's kind of two different pictures there. Um, now, obviously, he was, he, when, he, when Jesus was talking about, uh, um, when the Old Testament was talking about Israel, was talking about her harlotry and how she went away from God constantly, about an adulterous wife, and she was likened like that. And God kept on going after her and bringing her back, kept on going after her and bringing her back. This long love. But when you get to the New Testament, the church is looked at as this chaste, pure virgin. Now, is she without blemish? <laughs> no. But, in, but the, the blood of Christ has cleansed us and, and has washed us. And so in his eyes, we are. It's amazing. His grace is poured out over us. I love that. Thank you, Lord. And, and even when you're looking at people like Lot, you know, and you're reading about Lot, it goes, it says, yeah, and righteous Lot decided not to, you know, hang, hang out. I'm like, did you read the story, New Testament person? You know, Lot was, he was in the middle of everything. But no, God looked at him as righteous. It's amazing how God sees us, you know, and, and how we are totally, you know, caught up in life. But God loves us. His love overpours. The power of Christ's blood is amazing. And so I'm just, uh, I'm blown away at, at his mercy in my life. And I know in yours too. But Jesus, again, is identified as the Lamb of God. And we see throughout Scripture the Lamb in the Jewish sacrificial system. It was a foreshadowing of the real permanent sacrifice that Jesus Christ had on the cross. Jesus was slaughtered for the sins of mankind. Your sins don't get taken away by good works. Your sins don't get taken away by anything but by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's it. Period. That's the gospel, that God died for us. He loved us and can take away our sins as we believe in him. But just to give you a little interesting uh, background as we're talking about the marriage of the, the lamb, this is kind of interesting, a little bit of Jewish background. In biblical times, a marriage involved two major events, the betrothal or the engagement, as we kind of call it, and the wedding, right? And to be betrothed is like our modern-day engagement, except for in a couple of ways. There had to be a payment for the bride. You couldn't just, you know, you had to go to the father and say, hey, can I have, you know, can I have your daughter, and here's a payment, and, and, and all this type of stuff. So you'd buy her, give her a couple, him a couple cows or something, and she'd be good. <laughs> no. Right? Yeah, that did happen. Or in the case of Isaac and Rebecca, remember there was money and jewels that were given? 
It was a dowry, right? And all these types of interesting things, but there was a payment. When the payment was made, they'd be betrothed or engaged. They'd enter into a contract. And she was then set apart. She was off the market, right? Couldn't be anyone else, no one, none of that situation. If a couple was betrothed, they were considered married in the eyes of each other and the people around them. This is like Joseph and Mary. They weren't, they, did, they had not yet had, uh, you know, physical relations, but they were married in the eyes of God and everyone else. They were betrothed. That day was going to come when they would be uh, one. They couldn't be intimate until after the wedding. They couldn't be in physical contact until after the wedding, yet they were considered married. And they were obligated to faithfulness during this period of time. And it was during this period of time when they were betrothed, when they were engaged, that the guy, he went away to build a house on top of his father's house in, in, in Middle East custom. Um, I was over in Amman, Jordan, uh, 10 years ago. And you'd drive through Amman and you'd see on top of the houses, these half-built buildings on top of houses to this day. You get married and you get your start in life by building a t- on, po- on top of your parents' house. They'd build a floor and then you'd have your family there. And so that's kind of that's like awkward for us, but that's the way it went. And still does today, you know, pretty, pretty nifty um, to where they're able to help each other out there. So they made an addition. So the, 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 the groom would go away for a, sp- a period of time and he'd build this house. And... So during this betrothal period, as he went away, the bride would be preparing for his return. The bride would be getting ready, doing all the things that brides do, right? He's busy preparing, and she's ready to be patient because he's going to return at any time in Jewish culture. She, he, and sometimes at night, is kind of the emphasis in Scripture, it'd be a surprise. And then all of a sudden... There would be a surprise gathering. Hey, he's coming, he's coming. Hey, check it out. And great rejoicing. And she's anticipating it. She's ready at any time. It's like, how long is this house going to be built? You know, what are you doing? But she's ready. He's ready in her heart, in her mind, in her body. She's set apart. And then there's the actual wedding. And it's followed by a seven-day feast. The marriage supper, where they celebrate the wedding. It's pretty cool Jewish custom there. Seven days of partying and just having fun. It's often said that uh, you know, the commandments, would, if, the, if it made the, the uh, party less joyous, the rabbis would kind of give, you know, it's okay. We can kind of let that one slide. Kind of interesting, just the joy of, of a wedding. Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding. What did he do? Turn water into wine, kind of beautiful. Just wanted it to be a joyous occasion for them. You know, we look at and wonder about the wine. What are you doing giving them wine? He's like, look at these people. You know, I don't want them to be offended. I want them to have a great time. Not that we're going to go get drunk or anything like that, okay? But obviously, as I'm alluding to, this is a picture of Christ and his bride. This is a picture of Jesus and the church. There had to be a price paid for us. The price is Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins. We're under a covenant with him, a new covenant with each other by faith. We're engaged, we're betrothed, and although there's no physical contact right now, we are considered married in God's eyes. Pretty cool. And it's during this time that the groom is going to prepare a place for us. Remember in John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I'm going to prepare a place there to prepare. Sorry, I'm going to there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. That's what Jesus is doing right now. He's going to prepare a place for us. That where he is, we may be also. And we're to be set apart. We're to be ready. We're to be chaste. We're to be as if we're married. We're off the market. Right? We're ready. Waiting is returned anxiously because he could come at any time. And this is the picture that the Bible gives us of the return of Christ and, and the bride and this beautiful stuff. That you can go into Ephesians chapter 5 and read more about that and, and uh, just about the picture of Christ in the church, the mystery. But as we are reading today in Revelation uh, verse, uh, 19, verse 7, Christ has already come back for the church. And, and he's already raptured the church, we believe, in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 1. And now he's finished pouring out his wrath on the earth and has gathered his entire bride of believers to himself. And now we're having the actual wedding. And so let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, verse 7, for the wedding, lamp, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. How has the bride made herself ready? Verse 8, fine linen, bright and clean, was given for her to wear. Fine linen uh, stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. She's clothed in white. We often think of it as innocence, right? But we see here that that white linen that we're in is, is, is a clothing of righteous acts. Clothing of righteous acts. First, it's important to know that Jesus is our righteousness, not our actions. Jesus is our righteousness. Come, now let us settle the matter, Isaiah one eighteen says. The Lord says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Jesus makes us clean and beautiful. He's dealt with the issue of our hearts. We're clean before him. How awesome, huh? I love that. And then, now we're clothed in fine linen, bright and clean. These are the righteous acts of God. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10 says, and I want to read this to you. Check it out. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. All of us also have lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. I love that. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us, seated uh, us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages, check this out, and why did he do this? In order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. He bought us, he cleansed us, and, he's, and he seated us in the heavenly place, so to speak. Why? Because he just wants to show his, his, his glory and his grace throughout the ages to, about, to us. We have no idea of, of how deep his love is for us. 
of how much he loves you, of how much he's forgiven, of how much he has in store for you. It's amazing. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith and not of yourself. It is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And this is the the punchline right here. For we are God's handiwork. We are God's creation, his poema, where his poem, his writing, created in Christ Jesus. Why? To To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. All this grace and stuff that God's poured out upon us, and there's a reason for it that we are created to respond in a life of worship. And we were to walk in these works that God has created for us to walk in, for his glory. While we wait to be with Jesus, we are to clothe ourselves in the good works that he has for us, the righteous acts that God has prepared for us. We are to be picking our wedding dress. Guys, (coughs) you know what I'm saying? Lady, I have to do a ladies analogy. You're picking your wedding dress, all right? We're getting ready for game day, right? We're to be living like we're getting married. That any day he's going to be back. And we can say, I'm ready, look at me. I've got everything. I've been doing everything I'm supposed to be doing. I'm living like I'm married. That's awesome. I love that. I'm unashamed. I'm clothed got my dress, got everything picked out. And then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. This is definitely going to happen. Amen? It's definitely going to happen. Because when God says it, it happens. Verse 10. And at this, I fell at the angel's feet. Right? Saying the angels because that's who's speaking. I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold the testimony of Jesus Christ. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony of Jesus. Obviously, John is just taken by the glory of this angel. Angels are amazing creatures. The shine, just the sheer, uh, there's obviously different types and different kinds, but their glory It's just amazing being in the presence of God and just when he saw him, when he said these words and all these types of things, John was just compelled to worship him. He was compelled to worship him. (coughs) Excuse me. But the angel said a few things that we should know. First, don't do that. (laughs) Angels are not to be worshipped, right? Number two, they're fellow servants. Obviously, they're totally different. And they have different capacities and all that stuff. But nevertheless, they're servants of God. And so are we. We're fellow servants of God. Satan is an angel that desired to receive worship. He didn't say, stop. He said, yeah, bring it on. And he had some trouble there. And then this angel said to worship God. Worship God. This is what any servant of God wants to do. We want to direct the glory and the honor to God. You know, and and it's amazing when when God starts to use you, and I've seen it in your lives, when God starts to use you, we can't help but as human beings to go, wow, look what God's doing through them. Look at them. What are they doing? Look at, you know, you start, it's almost an indirect type of worship. 
you know? We can't help it. We're created for worship. We just look at things that are awesome and people, and we go ahead and give it. And the dangerous part is when you're in a position of receiving it, you begin to go, yeah, that's right. I did do that. That was great. Oh. We don't touch the glory. We remember who we were and what he saved us from. He alone gets the glory. It's okay to say, you know, thank you. You know, praise the Lord. But in your heart, man, just make sure we're tight. Lord Jesus, you alone, you saved me. You get the glory. Don't let me touch your glory, Lord. You. All glory goes to you, amen? That's what we're about. And that way when I get in trouble, oh, Lord, you. <laughs> you know? <laughs> He's pretty good at that part too, amen? <laughs> Lastly, the angel says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The true spirit of prophecy always shows itself in bearing witness to Jesus. <clears throat> when we go, hear of different prophecies and Nostradamus and all this type of stuff, you know, true prophecy, it points to Jesus. It points to Jesus Christ. That's what the spirit of prophecy, that's what the Holy Spirit is working in the prophets. It was always about Christ. It will always be about Christ. I like, uh, I think it was David Hawking said, any, teacher, any teaching of prophet, prophecy that takes our minds and hearts away from him is not being properly communicated. You know? Keep that in mind, you know, when we hear people talking about prophecy. In verse 11, we're going to bust through this now. And I saw <clears throat> heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. This is it, the return of Christ, right? All the other uh, revelations, they're, they're building up to this return, his return. You know, when kings would desire peace, they'd ride in on a donkey. When they desire war, they'd ride in on a horse. First time Jesus came on a donkey, he's coming back on a horse. The fifth horse rider, he's coming back. Here he is, the fifth horseman, obviously Jesus Christ, the faithful and true witness Again, when Jesus judges, it is with justice. When Jesus wages war, it's a righteous war. It's a just war. Verse 12, his eyes are like blazing fire. Fire is obviously refining and judgment. And on his head are many crowns. There's two words for crowns in the Greek. One is achievement, a victor's crown that we will receive when we're there. And then there's one for authority and dominion and power. These are the ones he's wearing. And notice it's not ten. Many crowns, all authority, all power is his. Because he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, amen? <clears throat> Verse 12, uh, uh, the other part, he, he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. I have no idea about that. And that's probably why it says that no one knows it. He is dressed in a robe <laughs> dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. He's dressed in a robe, dipped with blood, and his name is Word of God. And that word dipped means it's, it has blood all over it. This is hard. If Isaiah 63, I want to read a few verses from you. Uh, Isaiah, Isaiah 63, verse 1, it's not up there. Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with this garment stained crimson? Who is this, ro- robed in splendor, striding forward 
in the greatness of his strength. It is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Why are all your garments red like those of one treading in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, uh, from the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my, in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood splattered on my garments, and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance, the year for me to redeem uh, has had come. I looked, but there was none to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. And so my own arm achieved salvation for me and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath, I made them drunk and poured out their blood on the ground. Obviously, these are words of war. He's coming back because he's, you know, he's pretty much squashed them. He is dressed in a robe dipped with blood and his name is the word of God. John loves to say that. Verse 14, the armies of heaven were following him. That's us. Riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Praise the Lord, huh? Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He ruled them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of fury of the wrath of the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh were the names written, King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Horseback warfare often had their names written on their thighs and this type of thing. King of kings and Lord of lords. That's a pretty cool title. And I saw, verse 17, an angel standing in the sun. Amazing. Angels are pretty cool. You know, some 10,000 degrees. Who cried in a loud voice, to all the birds flying in the middle of the air, come and gather for the great supper so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and the mighty of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and, uh, free and slave, great and small. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. So the Antichrist, who's the beast, and the false prophet and the kings, right? All these guys are gathered together to wage war against Christ. And notice what happens in verse 20. But, there's a little problem here. The beast was captured. And with it, the false prophets, the prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. And with these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And the rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. So just a wonderful picture here. Somehow, and we're almost there, somehow we think that man is going to have an epic battle against God. You know, like when aliens did come down, there's a big old epic battle, and somehow, you know, someone drives an you know, F-14 Tomcat into it and it blows up, you know? No. Notice there isn't, there isn't a great conflict. There isn't a great struggle. Christ comes down and a sword comes out of his mouth. Now, obviously, this is not a literal sword. This is him. He's the word of God. He speaks. And when he speaks, it happens. He's going to say, that's enough. And they're done. The beast and the false prophet, all the power and stuff, they're going to be captured. They're going to be thrown alive into the lake of fire. Next week, we'll talk about the difference between hell and the lake of fire and the millennial reign and all this type of stuff. But they were captured. 
Keep that in mind. And they were thrown into the lake of fire because in a thousand years, you know, next week, when we read about after the morning, we'll come back and they'll still be there. Secondly, the armies were killed with the sword. Again, with the word of God. This is why Jesus is identified as the word. The word of God is very important. The words of God are very important. They can bring life and death. His words can bring life and death. The nations of the world, they reject the word of God right here. His words written and recorded. Man rejects it. We do. And he's gonna and they're gonna reject the word of God when he comes in the flesh, when he comes again. We're gonna close by reading Psalm two. So if you could flip over there, we'll just read it and be done. I'll read it and you can follow along. Psalm 2. Written a thousand years before Christ came to the earth the first time. Three thousand years ago. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw out their shackles. I don't want to have your authority over me. Let's break it. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion in my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned. You rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up at any moment. But blessed are those who take refuge in him. Just an amazing, prophetic psalm. We need to be praying for our nation. We need to be praying for our kings, so to speak. Whoever's in there, whoever's ruling over some wall up, that they would fear the Lord, that we would be a people who would fear the Lord again, that God would just rest his mercy upon us, that he'd have mercy upon us, that we would have life. I don't want to have destruction. I don't want to have wrath and all this stuff. I want to have life. God's put us here for a reason, to be salt and light, to shine his hope and his goodness to people, to proclaim the gospel Not many people are going to respond, obviously. But that's not up to us. That's up to them and Jesus. Our job is to be salt and light, 
and to proclaim the gospel to people and to love them with the love of Christ. You know, time is short. We want people to take refuge in Jesus. Take refuge in in today. If you're hurting or if you're suffering, run into him. He's a strong tower. He loves you so much. And these people out here, you know, and in here, obviously, all of us, we're, we're all prone to the same problems. We just have the answer. God, we've, God's, he's not pridefully, he came to us. He, he reached us. He gave us the gospel. There's no way I would ever be doing this right now. Why? Would you choose a life of denial? Why would you choose a life of, you know, of telling people about Jesus and them not really doing anything about it? You know what I'm saying? And going out and sharing the gospel out there. Like Paul said, how miserable are we? If we're living for today, then yeah, we're miserable, but we're not. We're living for eternity. We're living for that day when he, we see him face to face. He says, well done. Good job, faithful servant. Enter into your rest. And he rewards us openly for those hours and those days and those times that we've done things in his name that no one else knows about. Those times when we've, we've helped our neighbor, the times when we've given them cold water, the times when we've loved people. When there's no glory of man, God sees it. He has it all written down in books, as we'll see, and he will reward you. He will, he will lavish it upon you. Why? That's the question. It's going to be awesome. Clothe yourself with the good works that God has prepared for you. Not because, not to make yourself righteous. It's because we are righteous. Because God saved us. God made us right standing with God. And now we get to live that life. And, and we're going to live the life as if he's going to come back today. As if he's coming back tonight or tomorrow. And it's going to be awesome. It'll just be seamless. I'm ready. Be 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 praying. Be praying for me. Be praying for the elders. Be praying for the church that we would be effective ministers of Jesus Christ and that we would know how to equip you to do the same. Amen? I love you guys. If you need prayer, we're here for you. So let's, let's go ahead and pray and then we'll go ahead and have a good day. Lord, we thank you so much that you have uh, revealed yourself in our word, in your word to us. And Lord, we, uh, we know that... Uh, you're coming back, and we know that our lives are really just a testimony to your grace. We ask that you would give us a vision today of, of how we're supposed to live. You'd give us strength to do it and help us to deny ourselves and follow you while we have breath in our bodies on this earth. We pray for opportunities to love people, opportunities to reach the lost. Help us even in our, just in our own families, Lord, to be the people you've called us to be. It's always a struggle, God. And help us to shine your light beyond that. Pray for Walla Walla. We ask that you would be with the leaders here. We ask that you be with all the people, the moving and the shaking. That there would just be a, a sensitivity to your gospel. And that we would be able to be in the middle of the blessing. Amen.